Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for another episode of Coffee and Conversations, where we look at the intersection between relationships, faith, and leadership. I am one of your co-hosts, Michael Clark. And I'm Christian Harden. Thanks for joining us. It is great to be back in studio with you guys today. We're so excited. This is our fourth episode, Christian. It is. We're here. Moral Quattro. All right. So um, we have interviewed a church planter, uh, a business leader, and today I'm excited. We've got a professor from Johnson University in the house with us. It is. Um, but I know this is this is coffee and conversations, but right. he's not a coffee drinker. I know. That's, that was it, odd when you told me that. I, I, we're still letting him on. Yeah. There's no <laughs> doubt. He does like his tea, hot yeah. tea. Coffee and, and conversations with tea? Coffee, tea and conversation? Tea and conversation. Yeah, I don't work. know. Nah. Well, we can't change the name now. No. It's too late. Too it's late. too late. But we're so glad to have them. And wherever you're listening, wherever you're consuming this content, <coughs> we just ask that you continue to subscribe and share. Uh, you can also contact us at coffeeconvospodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you, um, how it is speaking to you, how you are also wanting to hear maybe some other things, some ideas that you have. We would love to hear those. Yeah. So definitely drop us a line. I'm literally waiting by the keyboard for the first person. So. <laughs> are you? Yeah, just waiting. I don't see the keyboard, guys. So, Brent, I'm excited to have you. Brent Brewer is who we're going to be interviewing today. Um, I was hoping I could say one day soon, Dr. Brewer will be able to say that. One day soon. One day soon. They've been pushing. They've been pushing for it, (laughs) which we're excited. I know when I attended Johnson, which at the time was Johnson Bible College, um, I was almost on my way out as you were coming in. Mm -hmm. Um, But I got to still sit in on some of your classes, which I enjoyed. And uh, just excited to to have folks in our city get to know you better. Folks maybe even listening um, outside of Knoxville uh, get to get to hear a little bit about your story and then currently what's you know what's kind of going on. So just give us a little bit of background on yourself, kind of where, right. where you grew up and cool. some of your experiences. Um, I'd say one of the most formative experiences for me was that when I was about to start second grade, my dad. Uh, quit a really good job. Our family sold our home and we moved to Atlanta, Georgia for him to go to Bible college to go into the ministry. And uh, so that was obviously a super formative experience. So I remember as I was in elementary school, he was in going through Bible college, you know, training to be a a pastor. And then we moved to uh, Alabama for about three years. And then we moved to uh, Barbersville, Huntington, West Virginia area and uh, ended up graduating from high school there. And so I grew up kind of watching as a pre- you know, preacher's kid, PK, and uh, the good and the bad that, that goes with that. And for me, it was mostly good. Uh, the, you know, we didn't get to live near our family. Uh, our, you know, our, my mom and dad both grew up in the same area in, near Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And so we never lived there And after I was eight. And uh, but the people in our church really became like aunts and uncles and cousins, and you know, so it was a, it was a really good experience from that side. And I I just really felt like I needed to go into ministry. I mean, there, my dad was real big on like raising up Timothys to you know to go into ministry. I think he had from this church in West Virginia, he had twelve different guys that went into full time ministry. It was a church of like two hundred fifty three hundred. And over the years, he had 12 different guys that went into full-time ministry from that church. So he, that was something he valued and he encouraged. And so 
it affected me as well, of course. Um, but uh, so I ended up at Johnson Bible College back in the day. And um, what that, was your first year there? 1978. Okay, as a yeah. student. Yep, I'm an old guy. So uh, <laughs> it was back in the day. I asked the wrong question, didn't I? <coughs> I was born there. <laughs> so um, the year I graduated at Johnson was the World's Fair, 1982. And uh, so that's, that's right. A kind of memory marker there. Uh, so yeah, Johnson was a great experience. I I wanted to do ministry, but I had kind of decided that I didn't want to do church ministry. I really wanted to teach, and Johnson didn't have a, a high school education program. They had just started the elementary education program, so I was going to do this three-two program with UT and get my you know teaching license for high school. But then I wanted to take the homiletics, and I wanted to take the hermeneutics, I wanted to take the Greek, and my advisor kept saying, you can't take all these classes and do this program, and so finally I just decided to stay. And that worked out really well, because my senior year I met this lovely young lady from southern Indiana, and uh, used to, uh, Johnson Bible College has also been called Johnson Bridal College. So <laughs> I've heard that. Uh, so uh, it worked out great. Uh, we've been married 37 wonderful years, wow, that's and great. Um, so she's also been one of the most formative people in my life as well. And so uh, then I needed a job, so I was really interested in education, but now I'm wanting to get married and I need a job, and so I get a job as a youth minister uh, in Eastern North Carolina, and uh, First Church of Christ in Washington, North Carolina, starting out, and that was a also a great experience. Those those people were wonderful and kind of raised us as we were very young at that point. And I really enjoyed that. The first summer we were there, we were in church camp with some people from Zimbabwe, missionaries from Zimbabwe in Southern Africa. And they said, we've got uh, schools and we have clinics and hospitals and we're looking for missionaries. And we, my wife and I were like, oh, that's interesting, because at the time, she, when she, well, I kind of stole her out of Johnson, and she went into nursing school in North Carolina. And I still had that interest in education. And so um, just kind of fast forward, I was then youth minister about four years, and we just kind of really felt God calling us into this ministry. It's, that's another whole story. But uh, I quit my job, went back to school at East Carolina University, and ended up getting a... Uh, secondary science education degree so that I could teach in Zimbabwe and get my work permit as a teacher. At the time, which is it only happened for a few years, but at the time the immigration department in Zimbabwe was kind of not allowing many missionaries in, but I could get a visa as a teacher. And so uh, that's kind of how the whole Zimbabwe thing got started. So we moved there in 19... So we... Uh, just as we were making plans to leave, my wife got pregnant with our first child, so we had to delay our departure a little bit. And uh, so we went off in 1991 with a little seven-month-old wow. guy, Christian. He's getting ready to turn 30 next week, which is, like, crazy to think. Wow, that's And awesome. uh, so, yeah, so we took off, and it was a great experience. Uh, Zimbabwe had been colonized by the British, and there were a like 1% of the population was still white. So uh, not, not a lot of white people, but they still owned land and they were into farming and all those kinds of things. And um, so we moved to this small town in Southern Zimbabwe and I was teaching at a local Christian school, 
which is not exactly the same as a Christian school here. Uh, in our town, the poorest kids went to the Christian school. The other kids went to the public school. So it was definitely it's the opposite. Flipped. Yeah, the opposite of what. Interesting. Yeah, it is, you know, in here in America. And so it was, I had this odd combination because I had a Bible degree from Johnson and I had a science degree from East Carolina. So I was teaching half Bible and half science. And uh, so it was, it was a cool thing. And I ended up... Um, we started a, they already had something going called the Preacher's Club, and uh, so I kind of inherited taking over that. I was the, at, when I started, I was the only white person at the school, so I, I definitely kind of get the whole minority thing. The school is about 700, 800 students, and wow. so it's a pretty good-sized school. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, so I, we would go out like once a month, we'd go out on the weekends with these guys in this preacher's club and we'd visit a local church and we would like preach and do stuff and do visitation and all that kind of stuff. So that was kind of a fun experience. And uh, I also became the soccer coach once they found out. I had actually coached <laughs> high school soccer in North Carolina for a couple years. I left that one little piece out. Um, after I went to East Carolina, while we were raising support, I got a job teaching at the local high school. And uh, so I taught a year and a half, and I coached the soccer team two years at the local high school in North Carolina. So then when I got to Africa and they found out I was a soccer coach, they decided I needed to be the soccer coach at the school. <laughs> That's great. And uh, the, I don't know if you know much about African soccer, <clears throat> a lot of the African teams have white European coaches, like their national teams. Yeah. yeah. And Zimbabwe's national team had this white German guy that was their coach at the time. And so I think it was just kind of like the, you know, if we have a white guy as coach, we're going to do better, you know, yeah, kind of a thing. We which, just like the national team. Right, right, yeah. So uh, kind of this colonial mentality, of course. But um, but I, it was, that was a great experience. Um, I We would be at the little stadium in our little town and there'd be maybe 3,000 people in there and I'd be the only white person there. So oh, wow. That's it was, yeah, it was a pretty cool experience. And I had some really good players and we won most of our games. So I was kind of like a little like local rock star. That's awesome. And uh, I'd ride my bike through the street and the, the kids would shout my name or they would shout the coach, the Fabish was the, the German <laughs> guy that was the national team coach. They would yell Fabish because they knew I was the local yeah. soccer coach, and uh, so you were the local national. Yeah, coach, that's awesome. That is fun. That's so yeah. cool to hear. That is neat. So, have you been able to play any soccer still, or, or coach? Um, I've coached my kids when they were younger, yeah. and yeah, they one time when I was early on at Johnson, they were trying to convince me to coach the soccer team. Yeah, but I was about to ask that. Being a full time faculty member and like coaching would have been too much. Now, I did lot. I did start the cross country team at Johnson. I was also a runner growing up. Uh, that was kind of more of my thing. I did play a little bit of soccer, but I was more of a runner in high school. And I eventually did start a cross country team at Johnson and yeah. did that for a few years. So that was a lot of fun. That course is brutal, Christian. <coughs> I've only I, heard stories about I it. I ran it one time and got embarrassed. <laughs> that's, that's, that's all I have to say. Why, why'd you run it for? It was a, it was a fundraiser. Oh, really? Yep. KLF was hosting Heels and Wheels out there, and I I got a medal, but I think it was more of a consolation. Did you make it across the line? I finished. Okay. Yeah, my family was there to cheer me on. (laughs) They were the only ones left there at the line. They 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 were not the only ones left. Thanks though. Thanks. I appreciate that confidence. Uh, Yeah, Christian's last day with us. 
<laughs> it was good hanging out with you guys. Uh, I just got fired. No, just <laughs> so from your coaching soccer, you are teaching science and Bible. Um, you've got the Preacher's Club, which when I hear the Preacher's Club, I'm still thinking about raising young Timothys, the way you describe what you guys actually did. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't just like debate club, preacher's version yeah. of that. You actually went and did ministry, yeah, uh, which mm-hmm. is really interesting. What, what other type of ministry did you guys find yourselves doing in Zimbabwe? Yeah. Well, so as you mentioned that, some of those guys uh, ended up going to our Bible college in the capital city and going into ministry. So some of the guys out of that group did that. Um, We got there during one of the biggest droughts they had had in like 50 years. We had two inches of rain in the, the first full year that we lived there. We had two inches of rain and for the whole year. And in the summertime, it gets like nearly 100, it's 100 degrees for like a whole month. And uh, so it was just like, there was nothing, it was barren. And so there was a lot of shortage of food. And so we ended up um, purchasing a lot of uh, food and and giving out probably a couple tons worth of food over a few month period of time. So that was kind of crazy. I'd never been involved in anything like that before. Uh, We went into a newer area that uh, had a group of people meeting and uh, but they wanted they needed some more guidance leadership and help and so we ended up working with this area and we ended up adding two more churches to that particular area there were people coming from a wide range of it was kind of in a rural area so we ended up building a church building there and um, they did most of the work i mean they they made their own bricks i mean really the only thing that we did was uh help pay for the roofing for the church and the the people did the rest and uh so that was pretty cool um my wife was involved in women's ministry and uh teaching music and stuff at the local school and all those kinds of things so that would be primarily and and obviously you're we're actually not in africa right now i know people can't see us but we're in (laughs) tennessee but so you ended up coming back um what was kind of the story that led to that to coming back stateside how many how long were you there yeah so we were there 12 years so we were six years in the small town and then we were six years in the capital city i actually taught at that bible college i mentioned earlier okay so i taught there for six years and did more of the same, probably more kind of leadership development, church uh, growth kinds of things, uh, other than my full-time teaching job. And um, we just felt like it was um, it was a crazy time in Zimbabwe. There was a lot of pol- political unrest, and uh, there was a lot of changes going on with the government. And uh, But that really was not our major factor. We just felt like it was a time for our family to be back here. I wasn't like fully ready to come back, but um, I did. We we kind of gone back and forth about it, and uh, my wife was like sure it was time to come back, but I wasn't quite sure. And then God just kind of gave me a piece about it, and people would ask me, "What are you going to do when you get back?" I'm like, "I have no idea," and but I and I wasn't worried about it uh, either. So, but I was I was really at peace about that, and people would ask, and I'm like, "I don't know." And as I got closer to the time, I could tell that when people asked, it was almost like they were thinking, well, you better start figuring this out, you know. But I was just completely at peace. I knew God had something in mind. If he wanted us back here, he had something, you know, planned for us. And so uh, I get off the plane and my mother-in-law says, you know, they're looking for a missions professor at Johnson. And I was like, no, I'm I'm not interested in that. And then my mother, so that was my mother-in-law. Then my mother 
15 minutes later, it's like, hey, I hear they're looking for a missions professor at Johnson. And I was like, no, I'm not interested in that. So uh, another long story, but God had plans for me to be the missions professor at Johnson. So yeah. uh, I ended up there. Uh, so that was like, we came back in December of 2002, and I started in August of uh, 2003 okay. at Johnson. So That was when I started there, too. Okay. So we did. We started at the same time. That's right. Yeah, cool. So that's, that's, that's really interesting because the, some of the things that you're talking about, the steps where I see God leading you guys and your family, um, it was someone kind of passing by while you were a youth pastor. We, we, have, we have a need for missionaries. And then you, you pack your family up. You maybe delay it a little bit because you have a child in the middle of that fundraising process. And um, it's just amazing to me. I just, I'm trying to think if people would still do this today. Would people are, are there folks that in this generation that would still just say, you know what? Yeah, let's go. Yeah. Why not? What, what? I think so. Yeah. yeah, I think so too. I think ours is <clears throat> maybe a little crazier in the sense that we never visited Africa. We just the first time we moved there, we were moving there to live. Now that's almost unheard sure. of today. Yeah, um, you get those exploratory so, trips right on the front right. end now, and yeah. yeah. That's really neat. And so teaching at Johnson, what, what has been a little bit of your role there? And where have you seen, I guess, grow in your passion and, and what you really see for today? Because here we are, even when you started in 2003, in 2020, the need and, and what missions, the context of that conversation is very different. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're very true. So how have you seen that? So um, I was kind of the head of the missions department. Uh, we didn't have a full major at that time. But we had, did have a, a good, solid program. Uh, but I also got to teach uh, all the everybody a class called World Missions and Evangelism, which would have been the class you were in the yeah. first semester that I was there. It would have been a rough semester for you having me <laughs> that that semester. Transitioning from teaching in Africa to teaching in America was a little little bit of a challenge. Sure. And um, but I also got to teach the upper level missions classes. And so that was really cool. But I really enjoyed getting to teach every student at, that came to Johnson uh, because one of the things I'd kind of observed in my 12 years as a missionary was that when we were home on our furlough deputation, uh, the preachers and youth ministers at the churches we would visit, they were always very gracious and very kind when we were there to visit. But then, for the most part, we would never hear from them for the next two or three years. Mm. And it was just kind of clear that they didn't really kind of get the missions thing yeah and so i'm trying to think why is it that preachers and youth ministers don't get the missions thing yeah it's very clear in the bible that it's kind of a key aspect of god's plan um and so it finally dawned on me that well they there must they must not be hearing about it in bible college where they're getting trained because most Mm -hmm. you know preachers and and youth ministers and pastors are getting trained in some kind of a bible college setting or seminary so when they told me I got to teach every student, I was like, yes. I know what they're going to get. And yeah. uh, so I'm going to get to give them some foundational material, you know, to help them get a picture of what missions is all about. So that was cool. That's really good. That's really good. And and, and I guess even in, in light of the you've now taught 17 years now there, um, I, I guess what, what have you seen as far as the, the generations that are coming up and even in the leadership um, whether it's in the church or in our culture right now, what what is one of the deficits, one of the gaps you're seeing? So in the church, back then you felt like, oh man, people are, are connecting with us and um, support us and, and value what we're doing, but then I never hear from them again. 
at the church level, what are you seeing with this younger generation? You know, what what you're, you're are you still trying to infuse some sort of understanding or perspective that you feel like is going to help um, direct where we're going as a country or as mm-hmm. as a Christian culture? What what are you seeing there? Is wow, that's a big question. All right. Um, I mean, I would say in general that this generation of students is very cause-oriented. Sure. And uh, they're, they're very concerned about justice and mm-hmm. those kinds of things. But uh, the spirituality <clears throat> side of it sometimes, this is the culture probably at, at large, yeah. not, not necessarily. The, I mean, that does affect the students that come to Johnson. But um, it, it seems like the spirituality aspect is kind of a side piece, but the justice and uh, you know, going and helping with problems around the world. It seems like people kind of have a vision for that. Uh, I think our students that come to Johnson have more of a, you know, even even jail evangelical focus to that side of things, mm-hmm. uh, with still wanting to be kind of cause oriented, and so I think that is definitely happening. Um, we're seeing a little bit of a decrease in the number of students just in the last three or four years who are interested in going into missions. And I, I wonder if it has to do with um, I don't know, maybe the narcissism in our culture and mm-hmm. the, just the concern for security and comfort and all of those kinds of things uh, with all the crazy stuff going in the world with refugees and ISIS and you know, Islamic terrorism and all these kinds of things that have been happening in the last 10 years, uh, it seems like there's a little more fear and need for security and comfort and those kinds of things. So, hmm. Have you heard if that's a trend in other universities at all? I feel like, uh, yeah, I mean, some other of our sister universities yeah. have just kind of completely dropped their missions programs altogether. So really? wow. we're one of the few that still has a strong uh, missions program. So, yeah, I think it is <clears throat> happening across, across the country, yes. Wow. That is really interesting to hear that. I don't think that kind of surprises me, mm. um, especially since kind of what got you motivated into this was, you know, the going part was pretty vital to our faith, and, yeah. and you didn't want to just do church ministry, mm-hmm. uh, even though that was what your dad kind of had modeled for you. But right. um, that's interesting. So I've seen a lot of missions uh, because of my context, not just overseas, but also locally, mm-hmm. um, and and that people start understanding their context on mission, their their you know where they're placed, where they're planted, uh, that it doesn't always mean you've got to get on an airplane. Although we, one hundred and ten percent support those that that need to go around the world and, and tell those that have never heard about Jesus that have an opportunity to hear the gospel, but also the people across the street from you mm-hmm. to to yeah, display exactly. them in in a way and. And that's one thing I think that's always encouraged me, Brent, about watching what you would emphasize with your students, um, the, the content you would want them to consume, uh, was look at the culture around you and how can you be the best Jesus in this culture. Mm-hmm. And so you expose them to even other faiths right here. Um, I know recently you took a, a group of students to the mosque mm-hmm. down on, yes. on Grand Avenue. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about just kind of a little bit of the motivation there. I know a little bit of your story of how you've done that locally, okay. but but what is that looking like with your students? Yeah. Well, I think when I first came, so like right around the time you were starting at Johnson, I was really convicted about that our students needed to get connected in the city. And I remember from my day, we had to do um, student <clears throat> ministry hours or Christian service hours. It was kind of a, you know, a, a mandatory thing for all students. But most of our students did those hours in churches. Mm. 
And I just felt like we, there's so, especially Knoxville's got, as you well know, a ton of faith-based organizations. And I just felt like we weren't, we, Johnson, weren't very well connected with the, with them back in the day. And I mean, it's a great, that has significantly changed for a variety of reasons. Um, maybe I had a little bit to do with it, but there were plenty of other, other factors. But uh, I just, in this class that you had, this World Missions Evangelism class, eventually 20% of the grade of that class was a, what I called a, an evangelistic practicum or an outreach practicum where they had to do their service hours with an organization that was doing some form of outreach like what you guys are doing at Kiko. And so we found other partners in the city doing things like that, Emerald Youth and Thrive and Lonsdale and uh, CARM and just lots of other organizations, KLF and Amachi and all these other organizations. And so Yoke, another big one that we've partnered with. So. Um, I just felt like the students needed to see ministry outside of a church yeah. and, and, and to see especially the complexity of most of our students at Johnson come from suburbs or small towns, and they had not really seen uh, much of an urban uh, lower income context. And so just to, for them to get exposed to that, I felt like that was really important. So that was kind of how it all started. And then uh, my wife got us connected with uh, an Arab uh, refugee family from Iraq. And so that was a cool experience. Uh, they had just been in America like three weeks, and we kind of helped them adapt and just all the different things that they were trying to figure out and like, you know, driver's license and doctors and, you know, getting a job and Social Security cards and all these yeah. things and helping them with their English. And so we just kind of fell in love with the, the Arab Muslim culture. They were just so gracious and wonderful people. And then... Um, we heard about a program called Homestay, where international students are looking to live with American families. And we were particularly interested in, we had heard some friends in another in Indianapolis that had been doing this with Arab Muslim students. And so we checked at UT and we found that there were a large, at that time, this is about eight years ago, uh, that there were a large number of uh, Arab Muslim students at UT. And that some of them were asking about Homestay, but there were no families doing it at that time. So God just kind of opened the door for us to buy a house in North Knoxville in the historic district and had a big upstairs and we ended up having uh, two Muslim students and uh, two Johnson students live together. And so we did that for three years. We had uh, 10 different Arab Muslim students and eight different Johnson students that lived uh, up there. Now they they were all paying rent so it it was a pretty cool deal for us. We got to have our rent paid by them because they paid the full mortgage payment. And uh, <laughs> so it was business as missions, I guess, in that yeah. sense. And money, uh, but, money from the king. Right, exactly. Uh, most of the guys that stayed with us from Saudi Arabia. And so we said that the king of Saudi Arabia was making our mortgage right. payment. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> and uh, But just getting to know them and learn their culture. And, you know, everybody would always ask us, how many of them have you converted? And you know, we really early on, we just really realized the first two guys that moved in, there were one was from Saudi Arabia and one was from uh, Kuwait, and they were 18 years old. And they just seemed so young. And, you know, it was just like it would be completely unethical for us to try to force our faith onto these young guys who only know Islam. I mean, that's all they know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we just felt like God just wanted us to love them and help them and you know, we got into lots of spiritual conversations. Yeah. I mean, like the first, like we ate meals together once or twice a week. And the, the first week 
they moved in on Saturday, and Monday night we had a meal together. And uh, Ali says, so you Christians pray once a week. And uh, <laughs> when you so eat, <laughs> he had no, no, he had seen us go to church on Sunday. Oh, that's the only day, and so that's the only time we pray, you know. Interesting. And, and he didn't say this, but it was, and he was a pretty devout Muslim. So, the, but the context behind that was, well, you know, we pray five times a day, and you yeah. Christians pray once a week. <laughs> and uh, I was thinking, for a lot, that may be true. <laughs> yeah, right. Sadly, sadly. and uh, so that just gave me a great opportunity to. Mm-hmm. explain what prayer was all about for us you yeah. know and so we had conversations like that all the time and so they got to hear a lot about Jesus and uh, so that awesome. was really cool so we did that for three years and then the Saudi government shut down their scholarship program and uh, we were kind of in transition my wife was getting ready to start a master's at Asbury in spiritual formation yeah. and I was getting ready to start a PhD so uh, we had four guys living right above us for three years and we didn't get a lot of uh, full nights of sleep because of that so we decided we needed a little quieter <laughs> environment so we a sold transition. that house and, and moved into something a little smaller yeah Brent, i'm just so encouraged just for you to um not only expose yourself but stretch your students to expose them to something cross-culturally uh, i think a lot of what our country is facing right now is due to ignorance and ignorance comes from lack of experience and i heard a local pastor kind of express it this way that he is preparing not the current generation, but the next generation to live with nothing different than what he idolizes. That this is the goal, that we would know nothing different than shared experiences and understanding for one another cross-culturally, um, across you know, ethnics. And, and I'm doing that for my kids because right. if I do that for them, then they know nothing different than what the ideal is for sure. me. Yeah. Sure. Um, and so I, I, I see you doing that for a generation of students right now that are coming through yeah. that, hey, you can have a different uh, experience than just what you grew up in in southern Indiana right. or wherever they've right. come from. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's so that's so good. I love that. Mm. And we do see a lot of them at Kiko, which yeah. is so much fun. Uh, to see them start developing relationships and get them out of their comfort mm-hmm. zones. We see so the comfort zones finally start to pop and uh, that bubble kind of come down, yeah. which is great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that is, that's rich. We're gonna, Christian's going to switch gears just a little bit and go to some rapid fire questions. <laughs> yeah, they're not really... <laughs> these are just for fun. They're never really fast. They're never really they're rapid not, fire. They're not. They, they take a second to answer. <laughs> Don't ask me these questions either. You always try to go around the table. <laughs> I did, and Colin did last uh, week. That's right. He did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Brent, your favorite movie, the type of movie that you can, I like to say you can, if it's on TV, you can sit down and watch it at any point in the movie. <laughs> uh, this is really old school, but I love Chariots of Fire back in the day, uh, the, the Eric Lytle story, and so that was a classic. Um, um, He's a runner. Yeah, yeah. I'm a runner, that so that yeah. Yeah, makes, yeah, that makes, makes sense. sense. Um, I love the the uh, Bourne movies, just the adventure oh, of yeah. the Bourne movies. So I could probably watch a lot of those to sit down and pick it up in the middle somewhere. I can do that. That's good. Any of the Bournes. And it's not a Braveheart, and it's not a... For once, it's not a Mel Gibson it's movie. It's not a Mel Gibson <laughs> movie. That's the first one. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, what about most influential book or something that really like just changed your perspective on something? Hmm. The Perspectives course uh, was it's a missions course that they do in churches. I did that actually when I was a missionary in Zimbabwe, and that that book really like introduced me to. I wasn't a missions major at Johnson. I don't know if I didn't say that earlier. I was a preaching youth ministry major, so I didn't have any. I had like one basic missions class, which I don't even really remember. So the Perspectives course, um, this a the book was a reader that from like thirty different authors. And so 
Yeah, Michael's pointing to it on his shelf over here. So um, that book really helped me get a grasp of yeah. like missional concepts that I really didn't understand, even though I'd been a missionary five or six years by that point. So even things like the 1040 window, uh, unreached people groups, I didn't even understand those terms when I first became a missionary in the early 90s. And so, I mean, those terms were only kind of starting in the 80s, so they were still fairly new. Yeah. Uh, so that book was uh, influential. A book I use with my students now that's been really influential is Speaking of Jesus, uh, The Art of Not Evangelism by Carl Medeiros. He, was a, he worked in Lebanon for many years, and it just has a really cool perspective on um, just the problem we have, I think, in evangelicalism of uh, kind of forcing people just to believe the right things and kind of miss the heart of who Jesus really is, the transformational side of what it means to follow mm-hmm. Jesus. And we see Jesus being so, you were talking about being inclusive. You don't think you use that word, but that's mm-hmm. what you were talking about before, Michael. But just the idea of being inclusive. And Jesus, you just look at all the people that he included that were excluded yeah. by... Yeah, I'm going to the well real quick here in my mind with the woman there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, the the uh, Gentile woman later. The, so many. Yeah, the you know, even Mary Magdalene, and just all of these different stories of people, yeah. of the fat tax collectors. Yeah. Uh, Coming just, to your house. Right, just all these uh, people that he included. And so that's been really good. Um, more recently, I've been reading Simply Jesus by N.T. Wright, mm, which, yeah. man, he explains the Gospels in a, all that's a different way, too. So it's on, it's on a long list that... Maybe I'll, I'll get to it one day. <laughs> Audibles. Yeah, I don't read, so it's it's kind of hard for me to get into a book. Um, we had a professor just give us a really long list of great books. We did, <laughs> so I'm gonna have to write those down afterwards. Yeah. We might have to share those Simply on Jesus. this podcast. Yeah, that's good. Perspectives that's good. too. Yeah, perspectives. Um, Brent, favorite comfort food? Uh, growing up in the South, uh, greens, cornbread, pinto mm. beans. Yeah, Come on. love that stuff. Going to Jackie's Fried okra. now. Oh, fried okra. Yeah, got to add that Some in good there. Mac and cheese. Yeah, the good mac, the good <laughs> heavy out of the box mashed potatoes. Mm. There we go. Um, more of a seasonal question, but kind of like favorite fall Christmas treat. Uh, pumpkin spice is big right now. I know you're down there, <laughs> always at the Starbucks, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Try latte. My, getting my coffee. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. That one was harder for me. Uh, I love a good apple pie with cinnamon in it. You know that yeah, kind of thing. That's seasonal. That's, so, that's yeah. good. And that that will go from fall all the way through you can Christmas. Just have that there you year, go. Year long. Yeah, or you could have it year round if yeah. you're just filling the. The, the fall, the fall. <laughs> All right. So funniest, bizarre, funniest or bizarre, or maybe it is a bizarre, funny experience that you've had in ministry. <laughs> All right. Probably the bizarre one was my first Sunday in Zimbabwe. Uh, we went out to this little church in this rural area, and uh, I went with another missionary, and we were meeting. They were they didn't have a building. This ended up being the area where we actually went and worked for many years and helped them build a building and all that. And so uh, that they were meeting in a school classroom that probably had room for like in America it would have been maybe sixty or seventy was max. They probably had hundred and fifty in there, and there were people standing outside looking in the windows. <laughs> and uh, so that was like it's whoa. Packed. And so, I mean, you know, it's like, man, these people are really spiritual, but, you know, the white people didn't show up that often. So part of it was just the, like, who's here and why is, what's going there? I mean, yeah. this is in the middle of nowhere. The nearest electricity is probably 20 miles away. So um, that was entertainment. 
at the end of the service, like five people wanted to be baptized. And so we walked mm-hmm. down uh, to this, went, walked a long way to this spot where there was enough water for a baptism. And I had my old school video camera. So it was like back in the day, the ones that sit on your shoulder. Like most of you don't even remember what those are like. It was like kind of like a TV camera. Uh, back in the day, that was the video camera that we used. And so, yeah, the, the fact that you can do that with your phone now is, is pretty amazing. But uh, I was doing that, and the, the second woman to get baptized, as she comes up out of the water, she just starts freaking out. And I, the only thing I'd seen, ever seen, that was even close to this was like somebody having a seizure. And immediately, two, the guy doing the baptism was big, strong guy, weighed at least 200 pounds. And this woman was, I, I'm sure she wasn't even 100 pounds. And she was jerking him all over the place. Wow. He, he was having trouble holding on to her. And two other guys immediately jumped in the water and the, took three big guys to pull this 100-pound woman out of the water. <laughs> and, uh, and I heard everybody going, Jesu, Jesu, Jesu. And uh, I was like, oh, my gosh. This must be like a demon possession or something. <laughs> My first Sunday in Africa. And the viewfinder on those things was so small, it was hard to see out of the viewfinder. So I had moved the camera to the right so that I could see what was going on. <laughs> and I completely missed the filming of it because I. Because you wanted to see I it. I wanted to see what was going on. It was so crazy. And so and, and the, they laid the woman down. She finally calmed down, and there were some other women. And then they just went back. They baptized three more people, and everybody was just carrying on like it was normal. And I was like, what? That was amazing. Crazy. And so afterwards, we were driving back home. I said to the other missionary, so what was that all about? Yeah. He's like, oh, it was a demon possession. I was like, he said, it happens pretty often. And uh, I was like, wow, man. And, uh, and then he said something that was really interesting. He said, they know how to handle it. Well, I didn't know exactly what that mm. meant at the time. But what I later realized uh, was that what he meant was we, white missionaries, don't really know how to deal with it, but they do know the how to deal with world. it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so that became a, a factor later on in, in our time there. But uh, that was a unique experience. Yeah. So, First, yeah. Sunday First Sunday yeah. on the new land. And then when... Almost any time we had mass baptisms where there were more than four or five people, yeah. that happened almost every time. Uh, so it was wow. something that they were very used to. Yeah. So that's yeah. pretty crazy. I can yeah. see that just being like so shocking. Yeah. You've never seen anything like that before. Yeah. yeah. It's been so subdued. To the part point where you move the camera just so you <laughs> can experience yeah. it. And we got the woods <laughs> captured <laughs> off to the side here on the viewfinder. That's good. That's, that's awesome. Good. That is bizarre. Yeah. That's pretty so cool. the uh, I think the factor was when people ask, well, what was was it really a demon possession? Like, but we have to understand about the cultures in Africa. They are very um, animistic and yeah. syncretistic, and they're very involved in spirit worship and um, uh, all those kinds of things. And so, uh, it's very likely that you know they have in you know brought in spirits through the the activities of their culture yeah. and so you know when now they're confessing Jesus and that demon wants to get out of there uh, so yeah that's that's really neat that's a great story thank you for sharing that yeah i think about uh, here we are back to some some of the hard heavy hitting questions here we are in 2020 in a nation that i'm not i'm not going to say i'm like 60 years old I'm, I'm 38 but i've never seen our nation as divided as it is today 
um, to where everything that, that you could articulate could be misunderstood, could be polarizing, uh, could be divisive. And I, I'm just curious, what, what are you saying to your peers, those that are your own age? What are you saying to the next generation below you on, on how to sensitively lead and be a, a person of faith in this context? What does that look like? What are you advocating for? Mm, great, great question. I would fully agree. Never seen anything as divisive as this. I mean, I, I was a kid during the civil rights movement in the '60s, but um, you know, I don't have a, a much of a vivid memory of that. I mean, I do remember when we moved to Alabama. Uh, the school had just recently been integrated, and so um, this would have been late '60s. And so, uh, you know, the having the African african-american kids in school with the white kids was a really new thing and so that was that was kind of a unique thing um you know part of this before the kind of current season for me was the all the islamophobia stuff because we had these arab guys in our house and 9-11 had happened and post that so there was all this kind of anti-muslim uh kind of fear of muslims and all that and we did this uh, we had a number of our family members like you have Saudi Arabians living in your house. You guys are crazy. Yeah, assuming they're all terrorists. Or right, something. right, yeah. exactly. And so we kind of were dealing with that side of this whole thing. I mean, the whole race thing, we, I mean, we didn't understand it as fully as we needed to, but having lived in Africa for 12 years, we, you know, we were certainly very open to uh, people of other colors and working sure. with people. And I didn't understand at the time how much privilege I had, uh, sadly, uh, but you know, even in Africa, both as, here and there. Yeah, as a as a minority in Africa, like I was talking about, me being the only white person in places, I never felt like a minority really because yeah. I had so much privilege, and so I didn't understand that at the time. But you know, coming back here and seeing all this develop, <clears throat> you know, it really is sad that um, the white evangelical church has not made much progress in this area, and uh, yeah. you know, we just kind of want to brush it aside and like oh we've had a black president and you know there's plenty of opportunities here and you know there's white privilege that doesn't really exist you know look at all these things we have affirmative action and all these things but uh, I feel like it it really is a, a serious problem that we really need to be working harder to address and so both with our peers at Johnson and uh, our students uh, I feel like we're I'm doing a lot more now than I was 10 years ago on this topic yeah. in, in, in terms of addressing it and so um, I probably started more with the Islam side of things to help sure. our students. And so, like you said, I, I've every year for the last probably five years, I've been taking students down to the mosque and getting connected and helping them meet Muslims and all of that. And just like, oh, these people are normal. They're just like us. Yeah, we have a few, you know, key differences in our religious sure. beliefs. But really, in many other ways, we're very similar yeah. And so um, it's in terms of our moral values yeah, and devotion to your faith, all and, those things, yeah. you know, we have a lot in common. And so I feel like um, my wife is on staff at a multiracial church, a Hope Fellowship uh, in North Knoxville. And so we've learned a lot uh, fellowshipping with uh, our African brothers, yeah. African-American brothers and sisters there. And so that's been a, a great experience for us. And so. I just feel like we need to have the conversation more. And I feel like most of our students um, at Johnson, uh, most of them don't, they come from communities where there are not many people of color, either Mm -hmm. suburbs or rural areas. And so I think for most of them, it's just ignorance. And 
I think once they hear these things, they're very open and like, oh my gosh, this yeah. is terrible. We need to, you know, we need to make changes. Yeah. And so I, I feel like there is hope for, for this generation to start getting it right. Yeah. I've loved the increased conversations I'm seeing on campus, even over the last few years, who's been in chapel, uh, what type of conversations you guys have just hosted, Future of Hope, um, all the different initiatives really that have mm-hmm. kind of been driving to exposure, driving yes. to inclusion, driving yes. towards, hey, we're not going to just provide, we're not going to be the Christian school here that is just for those who can afford it. Uh, it's also going to be our <clears throat> mission and we're going to provide it for those who are called, whether they can afford it or not. Right. And so that's been really, really neat to see that happen. Um, and I think, you know, kind of like what we were talking about before, it's it's creating experiences for folks that have never had them. When you hear someone that is your own age, that looks different than you, and because of their looks different than you, all their experiences are different than yours, yeah. you're like, you were treated how? You, you walked into the same store as me, and you were viewed as what? And so just to kind of break down what it's been like to grow up um, as someone, black or brown, um, beginning to give some of us that are white an understanding, a, a, a tiny bit of understanding, because because mm. we'll never fully understand it. Yeah, exactly. um, But I think it's so helpful, so helpful to hear stories, to hear people kind of share their experiences and um, not not sit there and try to pick them apart, which our culture loves to do right now. Yeah. Uh, but just listen and just try to understand. And I and I really love how you guys have postured the university to provide those experiences. Mm, yes. And those Definitely. conversations. So here we are, though. I don't know if we're mid-COVID, post-COVID. We're not pre-COVID, <laughs> but you're teaching in an atmosphere in 2020 that is unlike none other. None other, exactly. So classes look totally different. There's more online. There's you know what used to be twice a week, once a week. What used to be a big class is, a, is two small classes. Um, so my question is this. Do you see it still being successful in what you're looking for for the students to gain out of it and do you see the university model shifting as a result of covid do you mm-hmm. see online classes have been around for a long time right. i got my masters in a hybrid model um, probably your wife did something mm-hmm. similar yeah. um, you know you're a part of a cohort where you just go over and do a lot of research outside of that which is typical for a doctorate yeah. mm-hmm. but will the undergrad will the undergraduate level will it is it going to look different from here on out based on your experience and perspective mm, that's interesting um, i feel like People have the the going remote last spring and, I mean, a lot of universities just being fully online even right now. I think we're blessed that we've been able to stick around. We've had a low number yeah. of cases, and so we're, we're doing really well. It has been very different, but it's still been – I mean, I'm old school, I guess, in the sense that I just want face-to-face. And yeah. I've taught online classes, and, and I feel like students learned a lot in them. But it's still – it's not quite the same as being face-to-face. Sure. And so um, I feel like maybe this experience uh, has kind of highlighted the fact that that is a unique aspect of of the education system. And so I think maybe, if anything, it might, I don't know if it, I don't don't want to say slow down the online thing, but Mm. at least maybe give a pause to that in, in a sense. I mean, clearly it's cheaper for, you know, someone to get an online education. And so I think that's been one of the values and it's more flexible and, you know, people with all the things going on, that has been very helpful to have that flexibility. But do you think it's added value to the face-to-face class? I think, yeah, this experience is just like, okay, wow. Um, 
you know, our, we still are doing chapel. Chapel's really weird now because it's all spread out and everybody's wearing masks. Yeah. But it's still, we're there all together worshiping. And uh, so I think that uh, that piece of it and... That can't be duplicated online. Right. And no. then, you know, the doing the dorm de- hall devotions in the dorms mm-hmm. and uh, just the the camaraderie that you have with your fellow students and all of that. I feel like that you just can't get that sitting in your bedroom on your computer. So, yeah. right. Yeah. I was talking to a uh, last Thursday, we had a group of guys um, that were looking at investing with our youth and our teens. And one of them goes to Harvard. Oh. And he's all online right now. And wow. I told him about the joke of Phoenix University, which yeah, which was like, you know, the first online right. school and, yeah. and everybody discounted the, the level of education that people were getting at that first online university. <clears throat> and then pandemic happens and people at Phoenix University are like, hey, look, Harvard, we're all the same. Everybody's online now. <laughs> it, it's still not the same. I tried to tell him, hey, I understand your professors, the quality. Yeah. It's probably different. I, I get that. But uh, I don't know if he found it as amusing as I did. Did he he laugh? Uh, Maybe nervously. You know, know, it was a first introduction, and I went straight to it. So you You know me, pushing the envelope, the tacos, the tacos. But we're just excited that you have just come in and shared some things. But I'm I'm curious. You're working with now 18 to. You've got some that are coming to you know college later later in life, Mm -hmm. like my mom did. But what would you want to tell your 22-year-old self based on some hindsight today? Yeah. I would say slow down. Mm -hmm. um, Be more um, spirit-led. One of the experiences that happened to me in Africa, which I I didn't include earlier as a formative experience, was uh, my first six years being a missionary. I was a real high-energy, get-her-done kind of person. Uh, doing was more important than being, and so I was doing a ton of different things. You know, I, you've already heard I was coaching. I was had a full time teaching job. I was coaching. I was doing this preachers club. I was helping with drought relief. I was just doing everything that came up that needed to be done. I was just like kept adding more and more things to my plate. And uh, during that same time, I was spending less time reading the Word. I was spending less time praying. I was just like, I got to get out there and do all these things for God. You know, I'm the missionary savior here. And uh, eventually, at about five and a half years, I just had kind of a burnout. Probably it was emotional, physical, spiritual, kind of, a you know, the whole thing, I think, just because of my pace of life was just too crazy. And um, so I kind of had a crash and burn experience, had to kind of, slow down for a little bit just because I didn't have any options at that point. And uh, during that time, I really just slowed down, prayed a lot more, started fasting once a week, and uh, just like, God, what are you what are you trying to tell me here? And uh, as a result of that, I ended up having a kind of a very unique kind of Holy Spirit experience, which like really opened my eyes to, to the role of the Holy Spirit in a way I had never really understood before. And so uh, as I kind of went forward in ministry, um, you know, the spending time in prayer, spending time in the Word, uh, listening to God, not just asking or telling God what I needed, but listening to God and contemplation, solitude, silence, simplicity, uh, those kind of things. This is completely off track, but uh, the book uh, you asked about a while ago... um, 
John Mark Comer has written a book called, uh, now I can't even think of the title, um, Getting Rid of Hurry in Your Life. That's not the exact title, but mm. that's the idea of it. And he talks a lot about these things, silence, solitude, simplicity, yeah. and uh, prayer and listening. And so uh, those things have been much, I wish I'd known some of those things a lot earlier on. Yeah. It's interesting. That's been a kind of a theme for some of the folks we've had in here, especially in ministry. Um, and I think from our culture, like what we value in the Western mindset and in the Western context, especially is Caucasians. Let's just let's own it. It's, yeah. it's very much a white culture um, is that I, I, I perfectionism, um, uh, that I'm efficient with my time, that I'm effective, that I'm productive. You know, making, that I'm productive. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm constantly, you know, grinding um, and we're very much doers. And yeah. I think there's a lot that we can learn from from the other cultures around us that are mm. causing us to say, you know what, even when I don't have it all together and it's a mess, I can still move forward and be comfortable with this. That's really hard for me, Christian. You know that. Mm-hmm. But to also rest, to take time for self, self-care. Mm. And, um, man, that's that's yeah. something that right now our, our country needs to hear. You know, yeah. Take time for self. I think pandemic started that. But if we're not too careful, we go back to what was normal. Yeah, we just found different ways to keep busy. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. that's so good. I'm glad you shared that. Yeah, and our my African friends, uh, they really kind of helped me see a lot of that in those last like six years that we lived there. So that was really special. Yeah. Wow. Those are lessons only learned. You yeah. Know, you can't can't just teach those. You can take spiritual formation classes and those things, which I love. I love. I love. I love them. Um, so we're excited that you came and joined us today, Brent. Thank you so much for just sharing a little bit about how some of your relationships um, have formed your faith and have kind of helped you become the leader that you are today. And uh, I just appreciate your friendship. It's always been fun to get together with you. When I used to be able to come back on campus and share with the classes, hopefully <laughs> that will happen again. Definitely. Po- Post-COVID. Yeah. Um, but again, those that are listening, we thank you for tuning in. We hope that you've enjoyed it. You can de- definitely check out some of the links that we're going to share in the description. And uh, thanks for joining Coffee and Conversations. We want to thank again Bryn. Give a big shout out, Christian, to Bryn. Big shout out to Bryn. Thank you so much for the Yergachev coffee. <laughs> Be looking for that promo code. Yes. Yes. And, and mention, if you're a Johnson student, you're in one of uh, Professor Brewer's classes, mention you listen to this. <laughs> I can't guarantee anything, but it can't hurt to mention it. Yeah. Maybe he'll go. drop a test. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like a COVID test. But on bunk. Hey, it's fun being with you guys. Thanks for all the great stuff you guys are doing in our city, and uh, we love partnering with you. Awesome. Till next time.